You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. So our guest today, many of you probably know him or are familiar with him. It is the White Coat Investor, and a lot of people know his story, but you know, he started out in quite a bit of debt, just like most medical students do, and became an ER doctor and started trying to figure out what to do with his money. And as he kind of tried to figure out what to do with his money, you know, interestingly enough, he started out with a financial advisor that he, a couple different financial advisors that he ended up firing and then decided to invest on his own. And, you know, he puts a lot of money in, in a Vanguard fund that you'll hear about in the in the interview. And his net worth, you know, varies depending on how he values his business. But he's sitting between probably five and eight million dollars right now. A good chunk of that is in in the business, the White Coat Investor website and the the passive income flows and active income flows that come from that. And you know, he's living a, a super good life, still spends time working as an ER doctor. And also spends time working on his website and his his internet businesses. Yeah, I think that's great. So without further ado, let's let's turn it over to Dr. James Dolly and our interview with him. Welcome to Millionaires in Ville. Today we have Dr. James Dolly on the podcast with us. Dr. Dolly, do you want to just give us a little bit of overview of, of who you are and what you're up to? Sure. I'm an emergency physician. I practice emergency medicine in Utah. I'm about 11 years out of my training, 42 years old, uh, married to my wife, Katie. We have four children. Um, I uh, trained uh, in emergency medicine uh, during my residency. That was at the University of Arizona. Prior to that, I went to the University of Utah School of Medicine for four years. And prior to that, I attended Brigham Young University. Um, probably the thing I'm best known for now, though, is I write a blog called The White Coat Investor, which is now a podcast and a YouTube channel and a newsletter and a book and you name it. It's kind of grown into quite an online empire. Um, but that is where I spend my time more even so than practicing medicine these days, although I'm still practicing three quarters time. But my goal with that uh, website and podcast, etc., is to help docs get a fair shake on Wall Street and really to help doctors stop doing dumb stuff with money. Good stuff. And and I believe your your net worth is sitting north of five million now. That's correct. Okay. And can we get into some of the detail? How is that all broken up in terms of percentages? Sure. Well, it's hard to give an exact percentage. As I was saying before we started recording this call. The most difficult for me, difficult thing for me in pinning down my net worth is trying to value my website. Websites are notoriously difficult to value because they're pretty illiquid assets. Um, but in general, most people say they're worth between two and five times your trailing 12 months revenue. And so if I use a figure in there, it puts me somewhere between five and eight million total. Um, but, uh, you know, it's probably about two and a half million dollars in liquid assets. I think the house is probably worth about 700,000 and the rest is in the white coat investor business. Okay. And how is your, how are your liquid investments broken up in terms of the market? You have a 401k or an IRA or any of that? 
Well, yes, I have a lot of 401ks and uh, quite a few IRAs now that you mention it. Um, but how they divide into each account, I'm not uh, precisely certain exactly what the percentages are in each account. In general, I try to max out those accounts every year. And so I've got as much in there as I possibly can have, both the Roth IRA and the uh, 401ks. But just these last couple of years, I've really started investing quite a bit in a taxable account as well. Um, but for the most part, it's uh, mostly tax protected. It's mostly in tax deferred accounts like 401ks and Roth IRAs. You've changed around your uh, allocation a few times, correct? Well, the changes I've that. yeah, the changes I've made are actually pretty minor over the years. I mean, when we had a four-figure net worth back in residency in 2004, uh, we basically wrote down our investing plan, and that's basically the plan we've followed ever since. Um, you know, we've made a few very minor tweaks, adding an asset class here, removing an asset class there, but for the most part, it's been pretty similar asset allocation the whole way. So I'm just going to read from a uh, from a post you have on your site. It says you're in 60% stock, 40% of that, which is U.S. stock, 20 international, and then 20% bonds, 20% real estate, and within real estate you have you know some other things, small business, websites, other opportunities, and you talk about your favorite post being this total or your favorite mutual fund being this total market fund. Talk about that a little bit and why you've decided to put so much of your net worth in that fund. Sure. I, uh, I probably first purchased the Vanguard Total Stock Market Fund back in 2004, and it's been a part of my asset allocation ever since. The reason I like that fund is it gives you kind of instant diversification with a single purchase at very low cost. I think the expense ratio on that fund now is only three or four basis points. And for three or four basis points, you basically get to earn or get to own a tiny little share of every publicly traded company in the United States. And I think that's pretty awesome. You can buy that in 30 seconds online. And so currently that makes up about 25% of my asset allocation. So it's a big chunk for sure. And when the U.S. does well, well, I do well because that's a big chunk of my asset allocation. So I expect I'll continue to hold that probably my entire life. Uh, just like Jack Bogle, that's my favorite mutual fund. <laughs> so let's back up and talk about how you got started with the website. Was that something, did you graduate and think, I don't know what to do? Or did you know what to do and you decided, hey, a lot of my peers don't know what to do? How did that get well, started? Well, uh, you know, what really drove it is probably this feeling I had in residency that I was being ripped off. At that point, I'd been ripped off by an appraiser, by a realtor. Uh, by a recruiter, uh, by an insurance agent, by a financial advisor, you name it, I've been ripped off by just about everybody in the financial services industry. And I don't know that it was so much that I was terribly ripped off or that I lost a ton of money, but I felt like I was ripped off. And uh, mostly it was because I didn't understand how the industries worked. But I told myself, if I don't learn this stuff, eventually people are just going to continue to take advantage of me and I'm never going to be able to you know, reach my financial goals. And so about halfway through residency, I... Uh, had gone to a bookstore and I bought a book. I think it was Mutual Funds for Dummies by Eric Tyson. And I said, well, I've got some mutual funds. At that point, I'd gone to see a financial advisor who put me into some loaded mutual funds. And I decided I was going to learn about mutual funds. And as I read the book and realized that no load mutual funds were the way to go, I thought, well, that's what I have is no load mutual funds. 
then I went back and checked, and that's not what I had. I had <laughs> C shares, which basically mean, I mean, I think I was paying an expense ratio of one and a half percent or some ridiculous amount. And so when I confronted the, uh, you know, advisor about it, and I put advisor in quotes, um, you know, he explained, well, you, I give you the choice. You could either implement it yourself or I could implement it for you. And, you know, I guess I didn't realize when I had him implement it that it meant he was going to sell me crummy loaded mutual funds. But that was kind of what got me motivated in the beginning. And that just felt like the straw that broke the camel's back when I looked back on all these other interactions I'd had. So I started reading. I went to a used bookstore that was next to my house, went over there, picked up a bunch of books. Lots of them were terrible, frankly. A few of them were good. And after a while, I realized this is way easier to learn than medicine. And so I ended up online talking to people on forums and blogs. I spent a lot of time on the, on the Bogleheads forum. It's actually there when it used to be on Morningstar many years ago. And, um, and after a few years, I realized I was doing a lot more teaching than I was learning. And I got sick of typing the same thing over and over again into the internet. So I figured if I started a blog, I could just put a link there and just say, I've already answered this question. Here's the link and save myself a lot of typing. And that's literally why the white coat investor got started because I got sick of typing the same thing over and over again into the internet because doctors really all have the same 30 or 40 or 50 questions. They're not different questions. We just all have the same ones and we're all operating in a silo getting taken advantage of. Um, you know, and from the beginning, I decided I was going to run it as a for-profit business. At that point, I'd gotten really excited about passive income for some reason. And so I thought, well, if I start a blog, that would be like passive income. Little did I know how active it was going to be. And you guys don't <laughs> run a podcast, just how active it is. Um, but at any rate, it's worked out well in, in the long run for me, certainly. Um, but that's what got the White Coat Investor started. And and mostly because it was something that wasn't really out there and it was information that was really needed among my target audience. It really took off like a shot and has grown by leaps and bounds over the years. So let me back up here just a second. Do you, do you still use a financial advisor today? No. <laughs> what, when did, when did no, you cut I that? I pretty much haven't used off. one since I walked out of that guy's office. Okay. Uh, I just figured, you know, this stuff's not that complicated. I can learn it myself. Uh, really, it takes a little bit of discipline, it takes a little bit of knowledge, and enough interest to get that discipline and knowledge. So I'm not using an advisor now at all, really. Gotcha. How long do you think it takes you a, a month to spend managing your own finances and managing your investments? Um, I think we ought to you know, move that back to a year because I don't look at my investments every month. <laughs> okay. I mean, it pretty much gets set on autopilot. I mean, I guess I have to invest money every month because I make money every month, but that's really the only reason I'm looking at my investments at all on a monthly basis. I mean, the way I look at it is I want a plan that's going to work no matter what happens in the future because I don't have a working crystal ball. My, you know, my view of the future is very cloudy. I convinced myself of that once by writing down what I thought was going to happen in the next year. And at the end of the year, I realized I had no idea what was going to happen. So I figure I need a, an investment plan that's going to work no matter what happens in the future. And so it's just a broadly diversified investment plan that I can just, you know, rebalance once a year or whatever and direct my money into as I earn it. Um, but I'll be honest, I don't spend a lot of time on it. I spend far more time, you know, making a blog post than I do on managing my investments for the entire year. Um, I don't know, maybe six hours for the year. Gotcha. I mean, I really don't spend a lot of time on it. Uh, I've spent a little more time lately. Well, I've been dealing with some of this, uh, some of the real estate stuff I've been doing, really adding the last year or two. 
Prior to that, my real estate investment was mostly just a publicly traded uh, REIT investment fund. Um, but since I've added some you know, individual real estate investments there, I'm having to spend a little bit more time vetting them. But I've also set those up mostly so they just run in the background once you select them. That it's a matter of just cashing the checks. Gotcha. So let's back up to, you, you said you put this plan together in 2004. What did that, and you haven't really changed much. What, is that, what did that plan look like? Well, we basically just wrote down what I call an investing policy statement that said what percentage of our assets we're going to put into each mutual fund. And I think at the beginning, I think we had eight mutual funds and we just listed what percentage was going to go into the total stock market index fund and what percentage was going to go into the total international stock market index fund. And I think we had a, a small value fund. Uh, when I came out of residency, I was in the military, and so I used the TSP funds mm -hmm. as part of that. But basically, it was just the percentage of our assets we we're going to put into each asset class. And whatever had done you know, not as well in the last year, that's where we directed new money um, and followed that plan over the years. And you know, we made a few little tweaks here and there, but for the most part, that's the plan we followed. What are your current real estate investments? Is that something you, you manage yourself, or how active are you in those? I think, um, I don't think I could say I manage them myself. Um, I've got a number of real estate investments, none of which I consider myself the manager. I've owned a, a rental property before. It was one of those accidental rental properties. You know, you live in it for a while and then in 2010, you can't sell it. And so we had that for four or five years. And I'll be honest, I didn't like it. I'm not good at it. Uh, you know, I didn't enjoy it, especially because it was out of state. And so we're trying to manage this rental property in Virginia while living in Utah. And, you know, in the end, it didn't work out well. We lost a whole bunch of money. I mean, it was great to have the tax write-off, but, you know, I, I just realized that wasn't what I wanted to do with regard to real estate. And so I've taken a different approach and mostly bought syndicated real estate, meaning I can buy a small piece of a property together with a bunch of other investors and, you know, and we pay a manager to run it. And basically, once I've selected the investments for the next year or five years or 10 years, I just have the money deposited into my account. And then at the end, I get my principal back. And that's basically what I've been doing with my real estate investments. So they're both crowdfunded real estate investments that are, you know, debt investments, basically hard money loans for somebody that's flipping a house or whatever over the course of a year. And some of them are equity investments, like I own parts of several different um, uh, you know, apartment complexes. And uh, then I own some uh, parts of websites as well. I have a partner website to my website called The Position on Fire. And I own a, a small percentage of that, but that's one of my investments as well. And so I lump all that together into, into that category of real estate. More do you have recently, commercial? I, I do have some commercial. Um, you know, I've been moving more towards some of the funds that are available to accredited investors, you know, they're private funds, and typically these funds alone 10 or 20 properties, uh, but generally smaller than the properties that you would get in a big publicly traded REIT. Um, and so some of those are commercial as well, but you know, there's probably, you know, I don't know, maybe 20 total different properties that I own a small piece of, but I might only own $5,000 of it, for instance. I don't, uh, you know, I don't have a half million dollars on the line in any of these investments. Sure. I'm curious about your uh, bond allallocation. You have twenty percent in bonds. is there is that just to diversify to be less that's, risky? 
That's mainly to diversify and to be less risky. You know, bonds aren't so popular right now. Now that we're, you know, what, eight, nine years into a bull market, yeah. everyone's starting to wonder, why does anybody ever own bonds? But, you know, <laughs> I was there in 2008. I hemorrhaged a bunch of money. Um, the amount we lost in 2008 at that point was the equivalent of two or three years of savings. Wow. I mean, it was real money to us. Now, looking back, it's not that much money to me. But at the time, it was a lot of money we lost. And at that point, I think we were 75 stocks and 25% bonds uh, going into 2008. And I watched it all the way down. You know, and I watched days when we lost 5% and gained 5%. You know, one of my asset classes, though, that uh, Vanguard REIT index fund lost 78% from the peak to the trough of that Gosh. bull market. And a lot of people that haven't been investing that long, they don't realize that that is not an intellectual exercise. It's an emotional exercise. Mm -hmm. And what I found was that when I got to the bottom, it was all I could do to rebalance. I wasn't interested in buying more stocks than I already had. So I rebalanced back at the bottom and I bought stocks all the way down and all the way back up. But I certainly did not feel like I didn't have enough bonds in 2008. I felt like that was about right for me. And so that's why I've decided to just keep it there. Um, because when the next one comes, and we know it's going to come, we know we're all going to go through five or six bear markets during our investment lifetime. Um, I think it's good to have that ballast there. Now, is my expected return a little bit lower because of it? Well, yes. But is it high enough to reach my goals? Absolutely. And so I've, I've decided to keep you know, a percentage of bonds in the portfolio. And you know, even if I'm only earning 2 or 3% on it, like, you know, most bond funds are paying these days. That's okay with me. Let me ask you about a blog post here. It was written in, in uh, 2015, so I'm, I'm taking you back. See if you can even remember. It's called The Second Million, Why the Rich Get Richer. And you have a line here that says, it took me, together with my wonderful wife, 38 years to become a millionaire. About 18 months prior to this post being written, I figure that second million will take about a tenth as long. How long did that take and what has it been, you know, you've, you've gone up now to five, six, seven, whatever, you know, the amount is now, why do you, why has it been so much easier to grow it than the initial first million? Well, I'm, I'm 42, so I guess it's only been four years since I became a millionaire. So obviously they came a lot faster than I expected. Um, the most of that reason though, is the success of the white coat investor. You know, I'd never expected this to be a seven figure business. Um, but it just kind of took off and, and grew like crazy and, and really surprised me. I expected I was just going to be saving a percentage of my physician income for the most part and putting that away and earning a reasonable return on it. And, um, you know, that's kind of where I expected to build wealth. Uh, but in the end, a lot of it came from this entrepreneurial venture. And so part of the reason the second million goes so much faster is you got the first million working for you. And so that's obviously a factor. But a bigger factor in my life was I just started earning a lot more money. When you're making more money and living the same way you were when you were making less money, well, you pretty much, you know, once you pay the extra taxes, which is not insignificant, you're basically just investing it all. And um, so that's kind of why the next millions have come so fast. But the main reason is just the fact that this business took off and, and really became valuable. Have your goals changed since this business has taken off? I think they did change. I mean, our original goal was to have the equivalent of $2 million in 2006 money, which today would be about $2.7 When we had that designated for retirement, 
that was enough for us when we wrote down, you know, when we wrote down this plan originally. Mm -hmm. I think we bumped that up a little bit. I think instead of 2.7, I think enough for us is probably between four and five million. Um, but, you know, if we liquidated the white coat investor, found a buyer for it, you know, we're probably already there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that I have some crazy need to make additional money to fund our lifestyle. I mean, we've probably got enough to live how we live. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this point, you know, I still find it interesting to make more money. I like it. I think it's uh, fun to do, but it's mostly going toward investments. You know, some will go to help our children and a lot of it's going to go to charity, quite frankly. Um, but you know, we spend a little bit more as we make more money, but I wouldn't say that our lifestyle has dramatically increased in the last four or five years as our income has tripled or quadrupled. Do you have any plans to retire from being a physician? I don't have any plans right now. The only issue I've got right now is the white coat investor has taken up so much of my time <laughs> that I've got to, uh, I've got, just got to cut back a little bit. Um, right now, I'm doing three quarters at the hospital and three quarter time basically on the white coat investor. And so here I am essentially financially independent and working one and a half jobs, which is like, <laughs> what in the world? You know, what am I doing? And I mean, I enjoy both jobs. I love them. I love it while I'm at work. But sometimes I just don't have enough time to go mountain biking, you know. And so I'm trying to get control over that both by cutting back to about half time in my practice starting next summer as well as hiring some additional help with the white coat investor to try to decrease the work I'm doing to that work that only I can do and putting the rest off. But that's part of the fun of being an entrepreneur. You know, it's not just building something bigger than you and making more money, although that's always great, but it's creating these jobs for other people and to realize that you're not just feeding your family with your ideas, but you're feeding the kids of somebody else. And I think that's pretty awesome. I really enjoy that part of it. What? mistakes have you made along the way on this journey? Well, I think I've, I think I've made them all. It feels like it sometimes. <laughs> um, I've certainly bought things I shouldn't have bought. Um, I've certainly, uh, you know, made deals I shouldn't have made. Um, but I think I'm, what I'm pretty good at is making the mistakes with a small amount of money and recognizing it relatively quickly. I guess the mistake that took me the longest to recognize was buying a whole life insurance policy that was totally inappropriate for me. I mean, some yahoo, you know, is a friend of mine. He was interning one summer with Northwestern Mutual. And he comes to me as a medical student, right? I'm a medical student. I have no income whatsoever. And sells me a whole life policy. I had that whole life policy for seven years. And after seven years, my cumulative return was minus 33%. Oh, man. (laughs) I mean, luckily, it wasn't a lot of money, right? Because I didn't have a lot of money. I couldn't have bought a very big policy. But so I've done that. I've bought loaded mutual funds. Truthfully, uh, going into the military and having them pay for my medical school was probably a mistake, Hmm. at least speaking from a financial perspective. You know, I came out of medical school with no debt. But that was also at a time, you know, the year I started medical school, tuition was only $10,000 a year. Hmm. I mean, I could have come with my wife working. I could have come out of medical school owing only, you know, maybe sixty dollars or $70,000. And I could have paid that off very quickly. Instead, I owed the military four years of time. And as you know, the way the military pays for that scholarship, and I put scholarship in quotes, yep. is by paying you less while you're on active duty. You know, so they basically just give you your money up front. And, um, you know, and that's the way their scholarship works. So uh, financially speaking, I, I calculated, calculated it out once that I came out a couple hundred thousand dollars behind by going through the military. 
But these days, that's not necessarily the case, especially if you're in a specialty that doesn't pay very much. If you're a pediatrician or you're a family practice doc and you go to an expensive medical school, you may come out ahead having the military pay for it. So that's not a given for sure. But in my case, just the way things worked out, the numbers, um, that was probably a mistake as well. I think buying our first two houses were probably mistakes too. Hmm. I mean, we sold our first condo that we owned during medical school for a couple thousand more than we bought it for. And most people look at that and say, well, you know, you sold it for more than you bought it for, you made money. But that's not the case. Once you pay all those transaction fees, the realtor fees, it sat vacant for a couple of months before it sold. You know, once you add all that in, we lost money. And it was the same way with the one we bought while I was in the military. We lived in it for four years. And, uh, you know, all told, by the time we sold it nine years later, uh, the loss I took from the IRS was about $50,000. Wow. And so, you know, just buying a house before you're ready to buy a house, before your job situation and your social situation is stable, you know, that's a good way to lose a lot of money in a hurry. Um, you know, obviously you can get lucky too, but we didn't get lucky with either one of those. James, has your wife been on board with everything you've done, even from the beginning with starting to learn about investing or, or did she push you or how did, how was that relationship? You know, this was actually really good. And that, you know, if you really look for a secret of our success, it's that we did it together. And we've got literally an Excel sheet from every month of our marriage for the last 17 and a half years of what we spent every dollar on. Wow. And I can go back and tell you what I spent money on in, you know, August of 2002. And so we basically had a budget or a spending plan of some kind that we do every month. And we did it when we were making you know, $1,000 a month, and we did it when we were making $100,000 a month. Um, but we did it the same way and always made sure we were living within our means. And, um, you know, and that's been a big secret to our success. Now, is she as interested in the nitty gritty of every little investment as I am? No, she's not. But she no knows enough that she could handle the investments on her own if something happened to me, and certainly knows enough to hire good help. She could get competent help at a fair price without getting taken advantage of. And so I'm not, not too worried about it. Gotcha. Do you still keep a budget? We do keep a budget. You know, I've got this month's budget and, you know, we'll have one for, for next month too. So it's, that's pretty unique, it, right? You got to admit someone that's worth over $5 million keeping a budget. Yeah. Well, I mean, think of it more as a cash flow, uh, keeping track of your cash flow is kind of the way I think about it. I mean, we're probably living on 10 or 15% of our income. And so it's not that we need a budget to keep from living beyond our means, um, but just having some idea of how much money we can invest this month, making sure we're setting up enough aside for taxes and, and those sorts of things. Just knowing where our money goes is just being a smart business person. I mean, you wouldn't think of running a business without knowing you know, where the money coming in is going out. And that's really the way we look at our family finances. It's a business. And just because it's a successful business doesn't mean you don't have to look at where the money's coming and going. And what do you use for that? What do you, you do that yourself or men or what do you use? You know, it's, it's uh, pretty basic. It's just an Excel file. Okay. There you go. Just literally goes down, you know, property taxes and yep. utilities and you, you name it. It's just an Excel file. Gotcha. What are your uh, goals from here? We kind of talked about this a little bit, but do you have a magic number or a cash flow you want to hit or do you think about that? 
um, you know, we think about it, and it's kind of fun to see, you know, the accounts rising, but the truth of the matter is, I, I don't know that we have a huge financial goal. You know, I'd like to get a little bit more money into the kids' 529 accounts. You know, I'd like to have them probably something around 100000 for each of them by the time they turn 18. Um, but as far as hitting numbers, that's not really where we're at at this point. At this point, we're kind of writing down what we want our ideal life to look like. You know, literally how many days a month we spend doing this, and how many days a month we spend doing that. And we're trying to transition from our current life to our ideal life. And we focus a lot more on that than, than you know, trying to hit any given number. Uh, at this point, you know, I guess we're financially independent. Um, maybe not without selling the white coat investor, but soon we'll be there even without selling the white coat investor. And, and at that point, then I guess it really isn't going to have much of an effect on our lives at all. I mean, I look at money a little bit like oxygen, right? When you don't have any oxygen, it's the most important thing in the world to you. You can't think about anything else. But when you have enough, you never think about it. And that's the way money is. And we just want money to have that place in our life where we don't think about it. If we want to buy something, we can go buy something. If we want to help somebody out, we can help somebody out. If we want to donate to a good cause, we can donate to a good cause. And, um, and just not have to think about money or worry about money in that respect other than to manage our business well. So what are you excited about with the business, the White Coat Investor, going forward? Well, I'm excited about uh, extending our reach and kind of getting the message to more high-income professionals. I mean, every year it grows, our readership grows, and you know, there's people listening to the podcast and reading the newsletter and buying the book and all that kind of stuff. Um, but there's a lot of people that haven't heard of the message. You know, even people in my specialty where I, you know, I write a column for our throwaway journal that goes out to most <laughs> of the people who practice emergency medicine in the country and they've never heard of me still. And, and, you know, and that's not including all the dentists and orthopedic surgeons and lawyers and everybody else out there. So I think the message we have that financial literacy matters, even for those who have a high income. In fact, maybe it matters more for them, especially when they start out three or $400,000 in debt is an important one. And if we can get it to where these people can be financially stable, so they don't have to worry about money, and I think they're going to do a better job in serving the rest of society. We're going to have better doctors and happier doctors and make for happier patients and better medicine. And so that's kind of my goal. I'm trying to, you know, make medicine better by making doctors not have to worry about making their payments. Sure. Tell us a little bit about your book. Is that something that's just for doctors and dentists or could that be useful to everybody? Well, the big secret about personal finance and investing is it's the same for everybody. 95% of it's the same for everybody, right? Are there a few things that are unique for doctors? Sure. You know, some of the asset protection concerns of doctors, you know, being worried about being sued is, is a little bit unique. Uh, certainly, their late start in earning is pretty unique. Most docs are into their 30s before they really start earning any significant paycheck. Another difference is doctors start in the hole. Uh, and that hole can be pretty big, especially for the doctors coming out of training now. I just met a doc this week. Between she and her husband, they owe $900,000 in student loans. And wow. when you start out a million dollars in the hole, you know, your biggest goal is just to get back to broke to start with. And so, you know, I think that's a little bit unique among doctors. But, you know, living below your means and investing in broadly diversified, low-cost investments maximizing your income, making sure you have an adequate savings rate, all that stuff is the same for everybody. So certainly a lot of people that aren't docs have enjoyed reading 
the White Coat Investor, even though its subtitle is A Doctor's Guide to Personal Finance and Investing. But it's been read by many an engineer, a lawyer, you name it. And honestly, you know, that stuff applies to them just as well. Have you seen amongst your, your professionals that you work with that, that they are pretty bad with money or that they don't put some of this financial literacy as a priority? Yeah, doctors are terrible. <laughs> We're terrible. We're terrible with money. Um, part of it is just that we never got any training in it. And there's a quote from a Journal of the American Medical Association in 1915 about how doctors are terrible with money. So this isn't new. This has been going on for a long time. Um, but part of it is just that we get no training. Part of it is that we're ridiculous, ridiculously trusting of other professionals. And we're used to calling, you know, a gastroenterologist. And we know that by his code of ethics, he's only going to do what's right for that patient. And we assume that that applies to every other profession in the world. And the truth is, it really doesn't. You know, a lot, of, a lot of professions don't have nearly the same ethical standards. And so doctors get taken advantage of a lot. And a lot of uh, advisors and salesmen, they kind of target docs because they know they have a high income. I mean, they're not stupid. They want to be advising people that at least have a chance of building a significant amount of wealth so they can manage it and get the asset under management fees for it. And so they're targeted a little bit. And, and that includes by both, you know, ethical advisors as well as unscrupulous salesmen. And so that contributes to doctors doing dumb stuff as well, because they got people knocking on their door and trying to convince them that dumb stuff is smart. Um, but for the most part, doctors are just making the same mistakes everybody else makes and making it with larger sums of money. Gotcha. What would be your last piece of advice for, you know, the 30-year-old that's just getting started as a professional? Well, I think what they've got to realize, if they're already got it together enough to be a professional, you know, whether that's accounting or law or IT or medicine or whatever, if they've got enough smarts and drive to get this far, becoming financially successful is basically a choice for them. They can choose to be successful. And as long as they cover the financial catastrophes with appropriate life and disability and health insurance, um, as, and, you know, as long as they're earning a reasonable paycheck and squirreling away a good percentage of it and investing it in a reasonable way, there's no reason they can't become a millionaire. I mean, really. Um, all it takes is, is taking away 15 or 20% of your gross income, investing it in some reasonable manner, and sticking with the plan for 20 or 30 or 40 years. And you will be a millionaire, probably a multimillionaire. Um, it's just not that complicated. And uh, if you follow that kind of get-rich-slowly plan, you will be there. And so start making plans now for it. I guess that's what I'd say to a 30-year-old. Awesome. Thank you, James, Dr. James Daly from the White Coat Investors, our guest today. We really appreciate your time. I'm grateful to be here. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, James. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.